Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I very much underestimated um, what had gone on here hmm. because... I've represented a lot of people. I'm really quite ashamed as an American that my country has tortured so many people. I've seen a lot of traumatized people, but there's no one in all of the Guantanamo Bay uh, trauma who's been through what Afia has been through. Although to many Americans, the war on terror is now a distant memory, its horrible residue remains. The incarceration of Afia Siddiqui, a brilliant academic and mother of three, has become a symbol of its excesses of which there are many. She languishes in prison, serving an 86-year sentence for an offence that barely looks credible. The attempted murder of two US officials in Afghanistan in 2008. Her whereabouts before that date remain, remain murky, and so does the welfare of her youngest son, Suleiman, who has not been seen since her detention in 2003. To help us unpick the facts, I have invited Afia's lawyer, Clive Stafford-Smith, to shed light on what happened to Afia and her children. Clive has helped secure the release of 86 prisoners from Guantanamo Bay and still acts for the remaining numbers. Since the early days of the war on terror, he has worked tirelessly to force the Americans and other Western powers to adhere to the rule of law. He has sought to uncover the secret prisons and ghost prisoners that stained the reputation of powerful states who presented their wars in benevolent terms. Clive Stafford-Smith, welcome to The Thinking Muslim. It's great to have you with us. Jalal, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, thank you uh, for coming along today. And really, Afia, the subject of Afia is in particular, I think, a subject that resonates with large numbers of Muslims. And many of my viewers are from Pakistan, in particular in Pakistan, as you, as you know, uh, the subject of Afia remains, I think, a, a, a real sore, a real problem for... Do you know, what's extraordinary about it, really, is if you want to see a dissonance, and let, let, let me set you straight, it's Please. not the war on terror, ah. it's what um, the comedian Borat called the war of terror. Oh. And I'm afraid that's what it's been. And I speak as an American when I say that. 
But of all the different things in the war of terror, yes. um, the Afia Siddiqui's case, I think, is the one that most illustrates the total dissonance between the West and, um, you know, many Muslim people. Because you're in Pakistan, there is no one more famous. I, you know, I posit that yeah, Imran Khan is hardly more famous than Afia Siddiqui in Pakistan. Whereas if you go to America, where she's held, you'll never find a single person outside the Muslim community who's ever heard of her. Mm. And so it's just one of these things that is, as, as you said, there's a good word, a sore, mm. but it's a sore that the doctor who could lance it, the Americans, hasn't even noticed. So let's go back to the very beginning. Give me some background on Afia. Many of my viewers would not necessarily have followed the Afia case, especially the younger ones. Um, tell me about Dr. Afia and her, her abduction, or prior to her abduction mm. in 2003. Well, of course, one of the things that happens in all the prisoners that I've represented over the years is they begin to get only known as you know, a terrorist suspect. Mm. Uh, and all this stuff is said about them. Much of that which said about Afia is demonstrable nonsense. Mm. Uh, but that's all anyone ever talks about. And what they tend to forget is the human being underneath. Mm. And Afia, along with her whole family, I mean, they're a most remarkable group of people. Yeah. Um, Afia was the youngest, right. so I totally empathize. I've got an <laughs> older sister and an older brother, so yeah. I'm on Afia's side. Yes. Um, but she was the third very brilliant child in the family. First, there's her older brother, who's a great architect, who's designed lots and lots of buildings, including most of the mosques in Houston and Texas. And um, then there's her sister, who I've worked with a lot now, Falzia, yes. who's a totally brilliant woman. I mean, she went to Harvard. She got a medical degree. She was then the head of neurology at uh, Johns Hopkins University. Very, very brilliant woman. And I, I'll say this, I'll say it several times probably if you let me, if I'm ever in trouble, I want Falzia as my sister. I mean, she's formidable. not just brilliant, she's yeah. totally formidable. Right. And then you have Afia, who is the youngest. Um, and Afia also went to MIT, hmm. worked closely with Noam Chomsky, was involved very deeply in education. And that was her big thing. Hmm. Um, and again, she was another brilliant person who, you know, got a doctorate and all the rest of it and had a gilded career ahead of her. She had a very troubled first marriage. Okay. You know, I'm perfectly willing to, uh, to detail, uh, probably we won't go into all the details, mm. but her husband was abusive. Mm. Um, and so just before all of these things happened, she was divorcing him. They had three kids. You know, the oldest was Ahmed, age five. The, the middle kid was, was Mariam, then age three. And then Suleiman, the little mm. baby. And Afia was looking to both work in Pakistan on education, mm. uh, but also she was thinking because she was now going to have to look after her whole family by herself, because I'm afraid her husband was pretty ne'er-do-well, um, that she would then go perhaps back to America and get a job there that was well-paid so she could bring up all these three kids. Right. And, you know, as 2003 rolled around, uh, that's where she was. Her dad had just died, somewhat attributed uh, to her husband. Mm. And so, you know, they went through the period of grief after that. 
Uh, and then here we are in 2003. In 2003, Afia suggests she was picked up in Islamabad and taken to an undisclosed location. Now, let, let me tell you the full story. Please. Because this is, this is the key to all of this. Right. And, you know, I confess that when Fauzia bullied me into uh, getting involved in this, as only Fauzia can, hmm. I very much underestimated uh, what had gone on here. Because I've represented a lot of people. I'm really quite ashamed as an American that my country has tortured so many people. I've seen a lot of traumatized people. But there's no one in all of the Guantanamo Bay uh, trauma who's been through what Afi has been through. And anyone who has children knows this, or even anyone who has parents. Because Afia was taking a taxi to the Karachi airport mm. Uh, in 2003, and they're going to fly up to Islamabad, right. where she's going to meet with uh, the education ministry about ideas she had for Pakistan. She's in a deep argument with Ahmed, her son, because at age five, he was a big fan of Thomas the Tank Engine, really? and he didn't want to go by plane. He wanted to go by train. <laughs> And that was the subject of the debate. She feels a little guilty that she took a bit of a shortcut in the taxi to the airport that was the more dangerous route, but goodness knows you know, she couldn't have escaped what happened because you know what was happening to so many people back then. I didn't know this 20 years ago, but we as Americans were offering huge amounts of money for people. With Afia, it was reputedly about $55,000 was paid to Musharraf's people to abduct her and turn her over to the Americans. Now, this is where her case diverges from everyone else. Right. Because in the car are her three children. The goons surround, surround the car with a bunch of their cars. They reach in, grab you know, the little boy Ahmed and the little girl uh, Mariam out of the car screaming. Um, Afia has the little baby in her arms. Ahmed has described, and this is age five, and it's you know really hard for him to think about this sort of stuff, that he and Mariam were in this other car and were looking through the back window when it seemed that Suleiman fell and was on the ground, um, you know, with blood around. Now, you know, honestly, I don't think that description necessarily holds water. Yeah. Um, what it does reflect is the trauma that he's been through. But, you know, perhaps that's when Suleiman was badly injured, but perhaps not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is what's worse for the family, actually, with, with respect to Suleiman. He would be coming up to his 21st birthday, and they don't know whether he's dead or alive. Now, that's a terrible crime and a terrible trauma for Afia to have witnessed, mm -hmm. but actually it got much worse. I mean... I cannot fathom what my country, the United States, thought what they were doing because they took Ahmed, age five. Mm -hmm. As you well know, it's a thousand kilometers from Karachi to Kabul. Yes. They took him to Kabul. They put him in a juvenile prison in Afghanistan as a five-year-old. They told him his name was no longer Ahmed Siddiqui, it was Ali. And mm -hmm. if he ever said it was Siddiqui, they'd kill him. And they left him in this awful prison for five years. Mm -hmm. And he would have been there basically forever, but for Falzia. Then with Mariam, they take her little girl, age three, 
Instead of doing what, you know, if you're going to go around kidnapping people, which is not top of my list of things one should do on a, on a Monday morning, yeah. um, then you give the kids back to their family. You don't do what they did. But instead they took Mariam again all the way to Afghanistan. They forcibly adopt her into a family of Americans, a guy called Josh and a woman called Natalie, who I really want to talk to. You haven't met them yet. No, I haven't yet. No, goodness knows it's all secret, but I'm hoping that they'll come forward at some point and we'll be able to talk to them. Yeah. Because what are we doing doing this to this little girl? She spends the next five years in, um, you know, living with strangers mm. and would still be there but for Fauzi again. And, you know, then we take Afia and, you know, one of the unique things, but by no means the, the, the biggest after all these other stuff, is that she's really the only woman who went through the whole rendition to torture program. Right. She's taken to Bagram, Air Force Base outside Kabul, where she's tortured for five years. I mean, as if that's not unspeakable enough. And I first heard about this from Mozambique, mm -hmm. who I represented. I was the first person I represented in Gitmo. Right. And Mozambique was there in Bagram, um, and he heard this woman screaming. As we sit here, Mozambique is in Bagram. And I've asked him to take um, pictures of everything he saw on a videotape to reconstruct what happened to Afia. Yes. Because she's gone through all of this. And oh, my goodness, poor woman. And it, it goes all downhill from there, let's face it. So can you tell me about the role of Pakistan in the rendition of Afia and the transfer to the Americans? So... It's not clear if the Americans were actually there for the abduction okay, or not. Right. But this was happening all over. When I first went to Gitmo, I thought I had to represent a bunch of people who really were up to bad stuff. Yeah. And when I got down there in 2004, I had a hard time finding an honest-to-goodness terrorist. Yeah. Um, and it turned out it was all about this money thing. And really? it, the bounty was bounties. The and right. So Afia was on some sort of list? She, the Americans just would offer bounties, right? Okay. And there wasn't necessarily a list. It was a money that was being offered to turn over people. And, you know, let me give you this example. Mm. Um, let's say it's you. And uh, we're back in 2001, 2002. I offer you what is for the local people, the equivalent here in London of, let's say, a quarter of a million dollars, a lot of money. Yeah. So I'm offering you that to snitch on someone who you don't know, who you think's probably a bad dude, and you're going to get a quarter of a million dollars. Are you mm. going to do it? Yeah. Very possibly. I can imagine a poor person deciding to make that decision. But there was well, a... There can was... I say, though, what really happened? It was yeah. sort of interesting because all of this is not me saying it. Really? Because ultimately, in the end, President Musharraf wrote his book, In the Line of Fire. Okay. I strongly advise you not, not to put, to put on, on your shelf. shelf. It's yes. a really bad book. No. But I think it's page 234 of the paperback edition that I read. Yeah. He boasts that more than half of the Guantanamo prisoners were sold to the Americans for bounties, which we, the officials, got the money, he said. Mm. Now, the Americans were pissed off about that, because mm. not because they were paying bounties. Yeah, that was true. Mm -hmm. But because actually the money wasn't meant to go to corrupt military officers, it was meant to go to citizens. Yeah. But that's what was happening, and that's what happened to Afia. There is a claim by the Americans that between 2003 and 2008, Afia was not in prison. Uh, she was not held uh, in as a ghost prisoner in Bagram, but she actually was 
moving from house to house in Pakistan and Afghanistan and even Iran. I mean, how do you respond to that claim? I'm sorry to say this on your on your recording, but we have a legal term for that, <laughs> and it's total bullshit. Right. Um, look, we know she was there. We got the records of really? of um, the prisoners who were in Afghanistan in Bagram. Okay. And we've got all sorts of witnesses to it. And I don't know if the U.S. has ever made a official statement saying she was doing that mm. because they just don't. You know, they tend just not to say anything and right. then gossip comes out. There's lots of gossip about that. I read a lot about it, yeah. But it's nonsense. Right. And she was in Bagram the whole time and, you know, going through pretty unspeakable stuff. And then, Do we know what happened to her in Bagram? Yeah, well, we know a fair amount of it and yeah. I've talked to her. Yeah. Now... You know, with all of these things, I'm always loath to go into too much detail yeah, yeah. until I've figured out everything else that we know, mm. because I don't want to re-traumatize this poor woman yeah. any more than she is traumatized. But now we know what went on in Bagram, just as we know what went on in all the other prisons. I've represented scores of people who went through what she went through. And the, the U.S. government always lies about it. Right. But... You know, I'm telling you, it's a lie. Uh, what we did was torture, pure and simple. And what the proof of the pudding is we let her go, right? So for all this nonsense that they go on about, about our fear, and we can talk about the allegations, I'd love to clear some of them up. I mean, people say she was American. People say she was married to all sorts of Al-Qaeda yeah. senior people. It's total nonsense. Right. Um, but one thing that is absolutely clear is that after abusing her for five years they let her go now that doesn't happen if they think she's a bad person so she was released in 2008 and she finds herself in Ghazni province in Afghanistan um, you say she was released because they couldn't find anything on her but what happens next because can I can I just interrupt please. that I hate to do this to yeah. you but I think it's really important in the meantime to understand what happened to the kids because that sets it in perspective sure. so Falzia, who is the aunt of the kids, is desperate both to find her sister yeah. and desperate also to uh, to find her two nephews and niece. Yeah. And so she just goes to the ends of the earth on this and she contacts everyone, the Red Cross and everyone like that. She gives them pictures. Right. And after almost five years, someone at the ICRC, the Red Cross, finds someone who seems to look like Ahmed in this prison in Afghanistan. He's remained in this prison for five years. Well, of course, no one knew about that, wow. but yeah. Wow. So anyway, what happens is this woman from the Red Cross takes the picture yeah. to him and asks him if he recognizes the woman. And he says, no, his name's Ali and he doesn't know her mm. because that's what he's been told he has to say. Mm. But thankfully, as she's leaving, he says in a plaintive little voice, oh, can I keep that picture? And so, you know, as far as Fauzia is concerned, she, that might well be him. Now, in the meantime, the authorities in Pakistan do something pretty reprehensible. Mm. And they tell Fauzia that there's this other boy who is Ahmed. And she says, no, there isn't. He's not related to me. I mean, I'll adopt him if you want me to, but mm. it's not Ahmed. So in the meantime, she wants to talk to the child in this prison in Afghanistan. Fauzia has a very distinct voice, mm. and she had a very good relationship with Ahmed because mm. um, Ahmed 
did not get along with his father at all and spent a lot of time with Fauzia. And so uh, Ahmed called Fauzia Ada, which I'm reliably told doesn't mean anything. Right. And it was just a, you know, a silly little nickname. Yeah. So when she gets, she, she forces them to let her have a phone call with this child. Mm. The moment she says a word in her quite distinctive voice, mm. the little voice at the other end of the line says, Ada. Mm -hmm. And at this point for Falzia, you know, forget the DNA and everything. Yeah. We know who that is. Sure. But they did do the DNA, yeah. discovered it was indeed Ahmed. And so she got him. Then she now knows that she can get the others if she just keeps trying. So she carries on. She ends up meeting Hamid Karzai and convinces him of the horrors of all of this. And to his credit, he then says to his people, you know, you've got to find this little girl. Karzai, the former Afghan president. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so then, again, they go through all these shenanigans and they mm -hmm. try and get Fauzia, a very educated, sophisticated person, mm -hmm. to sign a bunch of documents without looking at them, which mm -hmm. she refuses to do. Mm -hmm. So she thinks she's blown it and she's not going to get the little girl back. But then a couple of weeks later, a little girl's dropped on the streets of Karachi near Fauzia's house wow. with a little tag around her neck. And the local security guard brings the child to their house. And, you know, this is a girl who from the age of three to eight has been with Josh and Natalie yes. and is totally confused and traumatized. But now um, Fauzia has them both. And then there's an argument because they were born in America, so they're U.S. citizens, as am I. And the U.S. doesn't think Fauzia should adopt them. And comes up with all this nonsense about how, you know, they're Americans, they should be given the opportunity of being in America. And Fauzia says, oh, you mean you think they might have a Harvard-educated parent and, you know, some, some doctor who can look after them? And the American says, yes. And she says, well, that's me. <laughs> and, you know, this is just... But I look at that and I think to myself, who was it that thought that it was okay to take two little American children, yeah. wrench them to another country, put one of them in prison and make him say he's an Afghan child and the other in some random family. I mean, who thought that that was something that our government had the right to do? It's just beyond me. And with Suleiman? And Suleiman, we still haven't found him. And, you know, I was first thinking, well, the kid was killed, that's that. But actually, when I learned about all this other stuff with Ahmed and Mariam, you think, wow, you know, maybe he didn't die and maybe he was adopted into another family. Yeah. He was six months old. He wouldn't know who he was. So for all we know, he's in Arkansas or someplace with some American family. So, you know, that is possibly, you know, the whole having idea of having disappeared children. Um you just never give up, do you? If it was my child, you'd never give up. Yeah. And so until we get some sort of closure one way or the other, I don't think this family is ever going to give up. I want to go back to the 2008 episode. But before mm, I do so, sure. you, you, you talked about two uh, terms here. You, you've discussed ghost prisoners and rendition. I mean, uh, I've got a very basic understanding of these. But for our viewers, can you just explain... Uh, who are these ghost prisoners? How many of them are there? What was the rendition program? And, you know, what were the implications on civil liberties and international law 
at you, the time. You know, when, when Guantanamo first started, right after 9-11, I was in Louisiana doing death penalty defense um, back then. Mm. And when all of this happened on 9-11 and the Americans responded so viscerally, to be honest, I just didn't get it. And that was partly because I grew up as a child in Europe. And, you know, let's face it, we've been killing each other for the last 2,000 years. Mm. And one thing that one has to understand about the American people yeah. is that you could name the three times that America's territorial integrity has been attacked. And you could name the dates of two of them, 9-11, December the 7th, 1941, yeah. which was Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And then the third one was the War of 1812. Yeah. That's it. That's the only times it's ever happened. And so this had an enormous impact on the American psyche. And when uh, our beloved government came up with the idea of Guantanamo Bay, I was aghast. You know, my whole life has been about preserving the, the liberties that we have in the U.S. Constitution, which is a fabulous document. Mm -hmm. um, and this was just more of the same that we've been doing to young black men for a long time. Suddenly we had a new hate group which were bearded Muslims. Sorry about this, Jalal, but that's you. Um, and so what we did was we jettisoned hundreds of years of the development of the rule of law, and we started this rendition program. Mm -hmm. And rendition is a word we just make that up right. because in you know there's a perfectly legal way to take people from one country to the other, and that's called extradition. Right. You go through a court system. Mm -hmm. When you don't go through a court system, it's called kidnapping, and that's a perfectly good word for that. But we started using rendition, still more extraordinary rendition, which is really just kidnapping. Right. And we kept everything secret. And for years and centuries, it, that's been illegal. You can't go arrest someone and keep them secret and not give them a lawyer and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So we took people to secret prisons. Guantanamo Bay in the early days was utterly secret. Right. When I first sued it, which was February the 19th, 2002, um, no one knew who was in there because they wouldn't tell you. Mm -hmm. And I genuinely thought there were a bunch of you know, guys captured on the battlefield of Afghanistan. Turned out to be totally untrue. Um, but then with some people who we thought for one reason or another were particularly bad dudes, we took them to a series of secret prisons. And yeah, I'll tell you just briefly the story of Binyam Mohammed, who is from here in London. Yeah. And Binyam, um, they thought he was behind a nuclear bomb plot. And uh, how's your physics, Jalal? Not very good. No, I think he's good enough to understand what I'm about to say is nonsense. Yes. He was tortured into saying that he knew how to make a nuclear bomb. Wow. And he said that what you do is you put your uranium in a bucket, you swing it around your head for 45 minutes, that divides uranium-239 from uranium-235. You get very technical, yes. Well, I mean, the truth is, I don't know why Iran wants these centrifuges exactly. when they can do it in a bucket. Yes. And this was the basis of the nuclear bomb plot. So we were, t and I, you know, I backtracked that when I represented Binyamin and discovered it was a spoof article from 1972 that he had seen. Right. And you say, so this is the crazy stuff that came out. But the, the U.S. was deeply paranoid at that point and would take people to secret prisons. Benyam was taken to a prison in Morocco where they took a razor blade to his genitals every two weeks for a year and a half. And then you get all of this total nonsense out of people. 
And this happened a lot. Now, with Afia, you, and then you have to backtrack to try to work out why did they think this person was such a big deal when he's actually nobody from London. Mm. Um, and so with Afia, it was interesting. And I just learned something quite interesting about Afia, which I didn't know, which is in addition to having people turn folk in with false stories for bounties, with Afia, the U.S. had got it in there tiny little minds that Afia was somehow a bad person because she had a degree and she could go in and out of America and you know so they thought oh maybe she's the next uh, pilot to pilot a plane somewhere mm. and so they start interrogating people about the, the folk that they're concerned about mm. and the problem with that is they're torturing those folk right and what I learned was this that there was a picture book of everyone's photographs of the people they were suspects of. And the people who were being tortured knew they had to say something about someone, but they didn't know any of these people. And someone, I won't name who said this because he's very embarrassed about it, but um, one of the people told me that actually among these prisoners, what they did was because they didn't know anything, they made up stories about the woman because they thought in their rather chauvinist world that the U.S. would never do anything to a woman. So it's safest if you're going to make up a lie to do it on the woman. And that's why the U.S. got it in their minds that somehow Afia was a bad person. And then suddenly you get this game of a circular game of everyone making up more stories and so on and so forth. That's mm. why you need a real trial so you can sort the wheat from the chaff. So in 2008, she was released from uh, her prison, from the prison, as a ghost prisoner from uh, 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 Afghanistan. And she ends up in Ghazi, in Ghazni province in, mm. in Afghanistan, outside the governor's house. Now, the U.S. claim she had a bag full of so-called extremist or terrorist material maps and various other uh, uh, concoctions and... Um, well, t talk us through the story. So yeah. what happens when she ends up... Uh, well, let me tell you what really happened. Right. I'm sorry, I do let you get a word in edgeways no, every I, now I, and then, Jalala. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, that's the trouble, inviting lawyers on your program. They never shut up. Um, what happened is quite extraordinary. I, I believe Afia, and she's told me, but what she says just makes a thousand times more sense than what the Americans say. Afia says that when she's dumped out of Bagram... Mm. She's told by the Afghans that she can get her daughter back, oh, Mariam, okay. and that if she goes to Ghazni, she'll be able to get her daughter there. Right. So she's totally traumatized at this point. But the one thing that she's clung to the whole time in Bagram is where's my son, my daughter, and my other son? Mm. So she goes to Ghazni thinking she's going to get her daughter back. What the Afghans have done, because, you know, really the truth is when we've um, done things like this, we kind of want to get rid of you because then there'll be no stories about it. Right. The Afghans had told the Americans that she was a suicide bomber mm. and she was going to target the governor of Ghazni. And so this all comes from the Afghans? Well, I, I'm not sure it's all the Afghans. Okay. But anyway, they tell the Americans that. The Americans come flooding in mm. and they shoot her. And they shoot her thinking she's a suicide bomber. They discover she's not a suicide bomber. Oh, dear. Mm. Now we've got to have a different story. And they didn't kill her. So it's at that point they start coming up with this other story. And now the trial story, that yeah. they took her having, you know, given us some medical attention back in Bagram. Mm. 
they took her to the Southern District of New York. Right. Now, one thing you need to know about the SDNY is it has a 99% conviction rate. It's not a place you get a fair trial. Mm. But that's true of most federal courts in America, to be honest. Right. So they took her there, and the story that they told was that she was in American custody, mm -hmm. that she'd been in custody for a while, but she wasn't handcuffed. That's a lie. That would never, ever happen. Right. Um, but then a soldier left his rifle on the ground unattended. That would just never happen. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Mm. And they say she reached for that gun to use the gun to try and shoot her way out, apparently, of, of the prison she was in, which yeah. is pretty stupid too. Mm. And then they shot her in self-defense, and then they charge her, although she's the only one who's been shot, they charge her with attempted murder of a federal official. Now, you know, there's just so much wrong with that, quite apart from the facts. I mean, let's pretend for a minute that all of that happened. Right. We're in a war zone. You know, if she really is an evil enemy of America, it's a war. You, you know, she's not guilty of attempted murder. She's guilty of being in a fight. Mm. Um, but it's not what happened. And so the U.S. confected that whole thing. Um, and then she had a profoundly unfair trial. But in the meantime, poor Afia was totally traumatized, having just got out of five years of torture, mm. having not got her kids back, and having then been shot. You know, this poor woman, it's astounding. She can still string a sentence together. So she stands trial in 2008, 2009 mm -hmm. in, in the United States. Why didn't the federal prosecutors... Uh, bring up the terrorist charges? Why did they charge her on, on well, this? You've you got to put your finger right on it. Right. They didn't bring up the terrorist charges because there weren't any terrorist charges. Mm. Um, part of the problem was they didn't want the jurors to know mm. about five years of her being disappeared and tortured. Yeah. Now, the moment they say, uh, you know, the first thing is they don't have any evidence that they could possibly use in a court mm. that she was a terrorist, but if they did that would allow the defense to introduce everything that they did. Now, they managed to keep all of that basically out. Right. So, you know, the... This bag full of evidence, so-called evidence, has it ever come up? Has it... Oh, look, I've seen certain things that doesn't show anything. Okay. Um, you know, again, we're talking... I've been through this a thousand times with the Guantanamo prisoners. They right. have all of these different... Um, allegations that are just extraordinary. Yeah. Um, but you see them in every case. I mean, you know this thing? Mm. You see what that is? It's a Casio watch. No, it's not. Mm. It's uh, evidence that I am a terrorist. Really? Because almost, I think roughly about a third of the people in Guantanamo Bay were accused of being terrorists in part because they had Casio watches. Can I see your watch? I don't have a watch. No, but well, that, that, that's... Some I don't want to be accused of being a terrorist. Jalal, perhaps you're not a terrorist. I don't know. But there are lots of other reasons. I suspect you just because you're a bearded Muslim. Yes. Um, you know, this is the sort of crazy stuff. Sorry, I, I, the Casio watch, explain that to me. So why? So the U.S. government, someone infantile, yeah. decided that Casios were what could best be used to make a bomb. Oh. Apparently so. I don't know if Casio wants to comment on that, but I bought this. Because I, when I was representing Binyam Mohammed, he told me that. And I thought, you know, I'm sorry, just as a laugh, I think I'm going to wear one too. <laughs> because I'm going to go to court on this ridiculous allegation wearing a Casio watch. Hmm. 
Well, so uh, she stands trial and she's prosecuted for the attempted murder of two FBI agents. And she's found guilty uh, of, of that. Did she protest her innocence during that Always, trial? Yeah. So explain her state of mind during that trial. Well, I think that's a difficult thing because, and I'm also slightly loath to talk too much about Afia's traumatized um, physical and mental state. Mm. Because my father was bipolar mm. and my father was, um, had a very problematic life. And we all know yeah. how it um, undermines the dignity of people to talk too much about what... I don't like the term mental illness. Mm. I think it's a bad term. Yeah. But I don't want to go saying too much. Afia, I'm going to say this about her. If I took you, I killed one of your children in front of you. I took the other two children and disappeared them. I took you off and tortured you for five years. Mm. Then I told you you could have a kid back and I shot you and then I accused you of, uh, of attempted murder. Mm. Where do you think you'd be? Mm. And um, so, you know, that's really all one needs to say on that. I think it's a miracle that when I did get to meet her, um, while she has all sorts of thoughts about America, that might make the average person think she was pretty paranoid. Mm. The truth is, you know, I think we'd all be a bit paranoid. If, and, you know, Falzia, wonderfully intelligent, sensible human being, yeah. would not fly to America by herself without me going with her because she was worried it was going to happen to her. Mm. Now, you know, so I'm not going to say that in any way uh, Afia is anything other than traumatized by the unspeakable things that we've done to her. So Fauzia went to see Althea for the first time a couple of months back. Uh, yeah. You were present with her. So how did you manage to... to well, I, I mean, I only got involved in Althea's case in January. And the reason for that was I just got three of the Pakistani folk out of Guantanamo and in a very stupid, weak moment, mm. I thought I had some spare time on my hands. Mm. And Fauzia asked me if I'd go see Althea. And I was in Guantanamo and, you know, I had to go to Texas anyhow. So I, it would have been churlish to not say yes. yes. So I went to see Afia. And the moment you've met this poor woman, you just, you can't say no, right? Um, so I saw her for um, one visit in January. And then, you know, at that point, you've got to do something about it. So... I thought, having met Afia, that the most important thing was Afia needed to reconnect with her family. Okay. And so Fauzia had been denied a visa for a long time, but I, I just don't think the people who have been helping her know how easy it is to bully countries. Really? <laughs> I've got to say, it's my profession. I love doing it on behalf of uh, weak and um, abused people. Yeah. So we got the U.S. to give her a visa pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And then she was very worried about going into America. So we got, you know, I wrote to the Americans and we told the Pakistan government they had to. And to their credit, you know, I flew seven hours in the wrong direction to Dubai to meet her and then 16 hours the other direction mm. to Houston. The U.S. was really good. And they met us at the gate of the plane, whisked us through. I wish I might get that every time I go to America. It'd be great. Yeah. Um, so it was fine, and then we went up to Fort Worth, and I'd arranged for us to go in three days in a row, 
Um, and Senator Mushtaq Ahmed was with us, who's been a very staunch uh, and decent ally on this. Senator from Pakistan, yeah. from the mm. Assembly. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, I took Falzer in first. And, you know, fabulous to get her in to see Afia, but there were some things about them which just illustrates the inhumanity of this. So they wouldn't allow a contact visit. So I asked, and Falzer asked, can I just hug? my sister for the first time in 20 years. No, no, no. We've been through all the searches. I mean, there's nothing we were going to do. And this is just mean. Um, you know, the guards were nice. Don't get me wrong. They were perfectly professional and they tried to be nice. But this was the rules. And so some of that was deeply unsatisfactory. But at the same time, it was lovely that they were both there. And some of the stuff just made me laugh. You know, the two of them... They're sitting there and they're swapping a few stories and then they start singing these playground ditties. Mm. Apparently, Afia once thought she was Shirley Temple with her little curly curls and they start singing some ridiculous song. Mm. And it was lovely. It was very sweet, but incredibly traumatic for both of the sisters. Mm. But one, Afia was going to go back to her cell and and didn't know if she'd ever see her sister again, and mm. Falzia had to leave the prison, which is the worst thing you'd never have. Mm. So it was really hard on both of them. Does Afia know what happened to her, her two children, you know, to Ahmed and Mariam? Does she know about their whereabouts and how they're doing? And their, well, she does yeah, now. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things, which is just stupid, is they wouldn't let uh, Falzia show visit. pictures oh, okay. of the visit. Right. Um, but they'd let me do it on a legal visit. I had a legal visit the second day, so okay. I took the pictures in. You know, so why am I, as a lawyer, allowed to do that, but somehow right. Fauzi is not? So that was just silly. But certainly she knows. But one of the things that struck me very profoundly was when Afia talks about her children, she talks about a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Right. You know, she's that, her life froze in that instance in 2003. And I've met the kids, and they're very impressive. Really? And Falzia has done a fabulous job in addition to her own four children raising those two. And Ahmed just graduated as a doctor, and he's now fully qualified. So each, every time I go to Pakistan, I get Delhi Belly, because I'm called Clive, and Clive was a bad guy in India, as <laughs> that's you know. Right. So that's the, the revenge on me. So I'm glad I've got another doctor to look after me. Yes. And then Mariam has just finished her third year as a doc medical student. So they've done fabulously well. But, and Falzir has really protected them from, you know, the, the ongoing trauma of the trauma that they went through. Let's talk about Pakistan. Um, she's been called, Afia has been called the daughter of the nation in the country. Uh, her arrest and conviction caused a series of protests I think Across you mean abduction and... Abduction, yeah. yeah. Um, now, has the Pakistani government genuinely attempted to use all diplomatic measures to uh, repatriate Afia? Well, I think you know and I know that there's more than one Pakistan government. Mm. And, yeah, look, I love Pakistan. I don't worry, I love India too. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, rub you the wrong way, Jalal. <laughs> But I have a very soft spot, spot for Pakistan, yeah. and I think there are some wonderful things about the Pakistan constitution and the courts. You know, they exercise more power than the British courts, certainly. Mm. 
And that's great. But to watch what happens there is very worrying. And to watch the gradual, um, you know, takeover of democracy by the military and the ISI is just wrong. Those people need to get out of the business of government. Um, Not that they're going to listen to me. But they know that I know that they were the ones behind all of this. And I'm a f- so, so when we talk about the government, I don't think there's an elected politician in Pakistan who's not on our side mm. because they know which side their bread's buttered. And everybody in Pakistan, to a person who I've ever talked to, wants Afia brought home. Mm. And I think some of them are genuine. I mean, Shabazz Sharif has met with Fauzia twice in the last couple of months and has been... I think, very sincere in saying that, uh, that he's trying to help. The question is, why can't they? Now, I'm not going to go into total details on this, but I will give you a sense of what's happening. Mm. So I, we got a really fine judge in the Islamabad High Court right. who has been doing what judges ought to do, which is to go to bat for weak people who are being trampled on. And I'd asked the judge, who's been very nice to me, um, to order the government to produce some things. I mean, we know all sorts of things that are in their hands that I need. One of the things I need to get Afia home is proof of everything she's gone through so we can do the compassionate release route. And part of that involves the five years she was missing and the torture she went through. You know, it may well be, for example, that Halid Sheikh Mohammed, who thinks you know, who according to the U.S. is behind 9-11, it may well be that he avoids the death penalty because he was tortured. And, you know, that's a mitigating circumstance that's going to avoid him. You know, the person who we say has murdered more people than anyone else in history, Mm. almost, uh, that he shouldn't, you know, get a reduced sentence. So clearly it's relevant to me for Afia to get all the evidence of her torture. You know and I know that the people who did that stuff don't want it to come into the daylight. So I think it's going to be that part of the the process here is that we have to take a position that the people who committed these criminal offenses of unspeakable nature are get away with it. And, you know, I'm okay with that. Honestly, I don't really believe in persecuting anyone. Um, because I think there are people who are afraid that their sins are going to catch up with them if Afia comes home, and so they're resisting her coming home. And I think that's the deep state of Pakistan rather than the superficial state. So in a long answer to your question, most people are are genuine, but they don't think they really have the power to make the people who do have the power do what's right. Now, I think we do have the power. That's my job. My job is to force anyone who's standing in Afia's way to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, I want to be reasonable about it. I'm not into slapping people about mm-hmm. unless they require it. Um, I'm hoping that we can convince all these people that they should just help us do what's right and, and be done with it. It's always a... a uh it fought in my mind whenever, I mean, Afia, I'd grown up knowing about Afia and her condition. And, you know, it's really affected not just myself, but Muslims around the world, I think. And everywhere we go, I was in Turkey 
and people asking me about Afia, thinking that I'm, you know, originally from Pakistan. It's just, it's one of those, uh, one of those subjects that's very raw and, and felt by, by large numbers of Muslims. But we do feel helpless. We feel that um, apart from hiring lawyers, I know you're not hired and you do this pro bono, yeah. but apart from having... We have to, you know, I'm not hired because as an American, it's my duty to set straight right. uh, the wrongs that my country's done. And you can't go around telling people they have to pay for that. Right. So apart from having, you know, good people like you to advocate on Afia's behalf, how can ordinary Pakistanis, Muslims around the world help Afia? Bilal, do you consider yourself an ordinary Muslim around the world? Fairly, fairly much so, yes. Yeah, well, there I've got you a go. Podcast, but, uh, You're proving your point. Okay. There is no one out there who doesn't have a talent mm. that can help Afia. You're demonstrating it. You know, I didn't honestly come to this because I just love talking to a microphone. Mm. I did it because you're going to reach people who can help Afia. Mm. And there's not a person out there who can't help Afia. And so, you know, you take anything. There are people, everyone out there on the most basic and simple level yeah. can write to her. Now, they can't write to her at the prison because a useless prison won't let it in, but you can write to me and okay. I'll get it in. Oh, wow. okay. And my email is clive, C-L-I-V-E, at three, the number three, dc.org.uk. And I'll, now that I'll you've all got it, the show notes, put yeah. it in the show. Yeah. And anyone can write to me. I will take that in on my next legal visit with her. And the thing about that that's good mm. is on my first visit, when I told Afia that she's a legend in Pakistan, she was visibly shocked. She thought everyone had abandoned her. Really? So having people do the simple act of writing to her is fabulous. But there are lots of other people, who other talents, with my Guantanamo clients, I've had people who have been artists who have worked on the artwork that my clients had from Gitmo. Afi is a great poet. You know, she we can is. take her poetry and do that. Um, then, you know, even with Guantanamo, we've got a Guantanamo cookbook coming out. Now, you know, those things reach a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And you can do those things. You can dedicate it to Afia. That not only gives her dignity, but you can maybe raise some funds a bit and help us. You know, we do have lots of costs. We've got to get doctors in to see her. We've got to fly Fauzi around the world on this stuff and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, we have a crowdfunder, actually, if you can put that up, if you don't mind. Please, I will, yes. And, um, and that way we can, we can raise the funds we need to make things happen. And in the end, we'll get her out of there. And, uh, and then, you know, some of the great people in America who I've met on this, the Muslim folk mm. have, I want to build a network of Muslim Americans who are going to contact their senators so that we can then get to those senators and we can get those senators to get to Biden and then we can get Biden to help us cut a deal. And the obvious deal is Shahid Afridi, right? Yeah. Not Shahid Afridi, Shaquille Afridi. Shahid Afridi, I think, would play cricket, cricket for my yeah, team. Yes. Yeah. I, he actually played against us in Pakistan when I was on a tour down there. <laughs> so it's not Shahid. Sorry, Shahid. It's Shaquille Afridi. Yeah. Because the Americans think Shaquille Afridi helped us murder bin Laden. So the Americans would love to swap Afia for Shaquille Is at this so? point, I think. Right. Now, there is some resistance in Pakistan to that from certain people. We need to just convince those people not to resist. Mm -hmm. And then we've got to get to Biden to make that happen. Uh, and then we can swap her and send her back to where she needs to be in, in Karachi. Um, 
So anyway, everyone can help. I just want everyone who's watching your show to know you can help. So we've got to keep the issue live. We've got to raise it on our platforms. We've got to make sure that Afia's name is not for forgotten. Writing letters to her on a regular basis would be would be very welcome. So I, I will put your email address on in the show. But notes. also have your kids write poetry in school, have, right. you know, whatever. But also have, um, you know, think about the different things that your individual talents mm. are most suited to because really that's what matters. Right. And if you're good at making a video game, make a video game where you have to go through all these steps um, to take an innocent Pakistani woman and torture her, you know, because then people like my son, who would be totally into any video game that involved that, will learn what's really happening or, or whatever. You know, there's no limit to what you can do. Five, uh, you advocate for prisoners uh, from Guantanamo Bay and elsewhere. I mean, what motivates you to keep the fight going? Well, I don't see any other point to life, frankly. Yeah. Um, and I know my mother, bless her, who died earlier this year, uh, would look at me very negatively if I didn't. She told me, and look, I'm an old OPWM, as I call me, which means old privileged white male. <laughs> and that gives me a lot of power, as the U.S. Constitution gives me a lot of power. And what's the point of that except to help people who are powerless? And there's nothing better. Look, I love my job. Don't ever think that it's tough on me. I get to get up every morning and I wish there were 48 hours in the day mm. because it's just so interesting and rewarding. And when you get to give someone their life back, nothing better. Are you hopeful that Afia will be released or at least will be able to uh, spend the rest of her sentence in Pakistan? Uh, I, I'm not hopeful. I'm telling you it's going to happen. Really? And it's just a matter of how many people resist us for how long. But it's going to happen. I'm not saying it's easy. It's not going to be easy. There's, there's a lot of people out there who have a lot of prejudices. Yeah. But, yeah, we're going we're gonna to make it happen. I wish she was in Guantanamo. It would be much easier if she was in Guantanamo. Really? But, um, but at the same time, yeah, we'll get around. Finally, I, I remember watching or listening to... I was on my way to work, I think. I was listening to... Uh, your um, your interview on Desert Island Disc. We spoke oh, about it how previously, back in 2000, early 2000s. And I think that the last question, the, the normal question, the setup question is, you know, what books would you take to, uh, to, um, uh, to your Desert Island, to your mythical Desert Island? And I think your response was something like you would take the Arabic and English version of the Quran. Now, I know you're very busy, but how's that project going going for you have you no, managed to read look i've read the quran when i was young the reason i wanted to take it then it was i think it was around 2002 was i knew that i needed to learn arabic and i thought i should do it that way and the way i always learn foreign languages is by uh, learning poetry because then you know when i do nel mezzo del camin di nostra vita in italian and that I may have a dreadful accent, but I sound incredibly erudite and pompous because I'm citing um, Dante. Yeah. So I thought I would learn Arabic by learning the Quran, and then I'd sound very pompous. <laughs> but I'm afraid it didn't get very far. I will tell you a story about that. Right after 9-11, yeah. I thought, no, nah, I'd better go back and read the Quran again. I haven't read that for a long time. And I had a copy, and please don't condemn me for this, but when I was in college, when I read the Quran, I highlighted 
passages, right? That's fine. Yeah. Well, I think it could be viewed as desecrating the Quran. I didn't mean it that way. Yeah. And so I, had, I took my Quran with me on the flight right after 9-11. And um, I'm just approaching the desk where they search you. And I think, oh, my goodness, I've highlighted a few slightly weird-sounding passages in the Quran. And when they open that book, they're going to think I'm a true terrorist. And so I was sweating as I came up there. And so they passed right over the Quran. They didn't even notice. And they found a set of nail flippers, which is why they took me aside and said, you can't take these nail flippers on board. <laughs> and I thought, no wonder the Americans are never going to catch anyone. If, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Clive Savasmith, you've been really gracious with your time. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website, thinkinmuslim.com, to sign up to my weekly newsletter. JazakAllah Khair. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.